What do farmers in Kenya, fishers in the Philippines, and teenagers in Boston have in common? They all need to balance risks when making decisions ranging from sea choice after considering predicted rainfall, to life vest use, and the chance of shark attacks, to social distancing and emotional impacts. Today's episode of Stats and Stories will focus on risk know-how. I'm John Baylor. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media Journalism and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me as guest panelist is Regina Nuzzo, professor at Gallaudet University and freelance science writer. Rosemary Pennington is away. Our guest today is Tracy Brown, director of Sense About Science since 2002. Under her leadership, the charity has translated the case for sound science and evidence into popular campaigns to urge scientific thinking among the public and people who answer to them. It has launched important initiatives, including All Trials, a global campaign for the reporting of all clinical trial outcomes, and the Ask for Evidence campaign, which engages the public in requesting evidence for claims. In 2010, the Times named Tracy as one of the 10 most influential figures in science policy in Britain. And in 2014, she was recognized by the Science Council for her work on evidence-based policymaking. In June 2017, Tracy was made an OBE for service to science. And most recently in 2020, she was made an honorary professor at the University College of London in the Department of Science, Technology, and Engineering and Public Policy. She's the author of a recent article in Significance Magazine describing what is risk know-how. Oh, Tracy, welcome to the program, and thank you so much for this interesting work. I, I just want to start our conversation about what was the career path that led you to Sense About Science? John, I'm delighted to be with you today. Um, I had a really unusual career path because I, in the 90s, was working out in the former Soviet Union, helping to establish centers for social research. And it was a really novel thing to do to research society. So I came up really close to communities that had had previously no means of actually looking at themselves statistically. Uh, or didn't have trust in the statistics that were available to them. And so it certainly didn't self-generate a great deal of, of research. So I, I understood the importance of societies being able to understand themselves in the context of experiences of other communities, women being able to look at whether their employment experience was similar to that in people, people in cities or other, other towns nearby, and so on. And I was really struck by how much um, that sort of ability to make sense of, uh, of things in numbers and to talk in numbers uh, was a kind of key part of our ability to operate as citizens in the world. And that kind of stayed with me. And then I found, as I, as I sort of found my way into sense about science and the need to address some of the kind of uh, crisis points in the relationship between science and society, I found myself coming back to that many times. Tracy, I think that I read somewhere that you spent a year in a PR company setting up a risk analysis unit. That sounds fascinating. Was that before Sense About Science? And what did you learn there? Well, what I learned there is that companies like the idea of doing research um, and then uh, when it, it doesn't necessarily fulfill the bottom line because researchers want to go off exploring things, uh, it doesn't always work out. So I was, um, I was really keen uh, on being, you know, encouraging uh, companies to think more sensitively about how they understand risk. And that was something that I dabbled in when I, when I was back from Russia. And then I discovered the opportunity with Sense About Science, which was for me a much better 
could fit because it was very much looking at these things from the perspective of what does the public want and need? Uh, what are they missing out on? And I felt that that was a, a much better fit for me. But it was very useful for me to be exposed to how corporations think about risk. But I have to say only for a short time before, if you, if you remember the sort of early 2000s was a time when there were so many debates about risk. I mean, the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine, an issue which started in the UK, kind of spread to the US. Um, then we had sort of all the discussions about cell phones and whether they posed a new form of health risk. There were all sorts of areas where people were encountering new risks um, and, and really struggling with understanding them in a context. And so I was much more drawn towards that sort of area, really, than sort of, you know, counting out how many aeroplanes we expected to fall out of the sky in any given year. Um, I, I felt that that was where the, you know, the best public benefit was. I, I loved your response earlier when you talked about the uh, being involved in crisis points between science and society. It sounds like that that may have been one of the considerations that that the transition to this idea of of even thinking about what does risk know how mean, or what does that what does that mean, and why why did you get involved? Why did Sense About Science get involved in thinking about about this idea of risk know how? Well. John, really where it's come from is that over the years, we have found ourselves at that interface where things are particularly difficult. And that might be for a number of reasons. It may be because an issue is polarised, as we saw you know, GM crops, for example. It may be that there is an issue that's extremely emotive. So a good example of where we've had to help people navigate risk is the parents of children undergoing heart surgery who are confronted with sort of different sets of outcomes data from different surgical units and expected to make a judgment on whether they should submit their child to a procedure and figure out, you know, six months from now, is that going to make uh, a significant difference to their, to their experience of, um, of life? And that was a very hard conversation and one that had been fraught previously with problems between medics and parents. And so we had we developed a parent-led approach to kind of extracting the risk information that was needed for them, rather than these, you know, reams of stuff that people were publishing, rather, rather like a data dump from different surgical units that were published or acquired by regulation. It was no help whatsoever to parents navigating. So those are the sorts of examples that we had. Uh, we had worked with people on with researchers on publishing data that they knew was going to cause a public stir, for example, monitoring data on environmental health effects, and helped them to do that in a way that didn't sensationalize the data uh, and, and sort of lead to a misunderstanding of, of risks. For example, in that case, you know, when you publish the data monitoring health effects of uh, potential environmental agents in a city, you will have far higher rates of cancer, of lung cancer, but it's because you're in a city uh, and there are more incinerators there and there are other potential agents there. It's not, it doesn't tell you necessarily that there's a causative relationship there. But of course, when you publish data like that, you have local newspapers um, and sort of local politicians raking over it, trying to understand where they sit in the, the pecking order of risk. So we had to done a lot of that kind of work from that came a sense that actually there are common themes, common things that keep coming up, common misunderstandings, 
common problems, as I'm sure you'll be aware, of how the media misrepresent, sometimes purposely and sometimes uh, unwittingly. When they talk, for example, about, um, they talk about relative risk and not the absolute risk. They'll say a doubling of the children who say they've been offered um, uh, illegal drugs, uh, and then you find out that it's from one to two. Um, self-reported and uh, what does offered mean and so on you know so we, we kind of dealt with those sorts of issues uh, of, of misrepresentation of numbers over the years um, and from that we began to see these patterns and effectively a syllabus has begun to suggest itself. When you're talking about the media I often see these headlines like here's why you should do x so they're not putting that that risk or that uncertainty in the context, they're boiling it down to this dichotomous yes, no, zero, one sort of thing. So uh, what, what is your response to that? I know that's a, a human tendency, but a lot of the work that you're talking about, how to get away from that. What, what's your advice? Well, I think it's very difficult with the media to counter some of that because they're looking to give a lot of lifestyle advice. And we've seen a huge growth in the last 10, 20 years of lifestyle media. And perhaps one of the issues that we've been dealing with a lot, and I think maybe more people need to deal with, is when it comes to science communication, statistics communication, risk communication, I think we need to target some of those media more. I think a lot of the kind of information, the help that goes out to journalists has been to help them, you know, those that are working as science correspondents in the main newspapers. And I think we need to think more carefully about those. But in terms of that sort of article, I think it's possible for people still to write a nuanced article that says, you know, you may be uh, able to benefit from these things if you, if you are in this group of people. And we could ask people to start looking for more nuance in that. And I have seen that. I have seen, um, for example, when you look at things like stroke reduction and how do we, uh, you know, not everyone who goes jogging every day and eats salad for dinner uh, is going to benefit from that in terms of stroke reduction. But how could we identify those people that would benefit from dietary change. And I've seen over the last sort of four or five years, right across the world, I've seen some really decent articles written uh, that help people to you know, navigate who best, best benefits from those kind of interventions. You know, I, I, I like this idea that, that you've, you know, you've seen this syllabus emerging out of the, the encounters that you've had with, with considerations of risk and communicating this with communities. I, I, I find this to be a really, this is a really hard question, a really hard topic, because when, I, when thinking about risk, you have this issue of assessing risk, you have this issue of comparing risks, you have issues then ultimately of managing risks, and you can, you know, you can have very different decisions in the comparing and managing, even if you come to the same conclusion regarding your assessments. So how, that, how, do, how do you help communities you know, deconstruct this, this larger process? Well, I should say, first of all, that there's a lot of uh, difference in people's ability to actually do something about the risks they live with. And of course, as you've alluded to there, there's a lot of difference between their risk context and so, you know, making small dietary changes may be low on their list if they are not living with running water, um, for example. And th this is the kind of thing that I think is often misunderstood. So the first thing I'd say is a lot of the misunderstanding 
comes on the part of those people who complain about the public's understanding of risk. You know, we assume, for example, that there's not enough seriousness given to the threat of climate change without looking sometimes at people's ability to do something about it. And that that, it may tell you that they're actually confronting other issues more prominently. It doesn't necessarily mean that that's not a problem for them. It just simply means they're dealing with other things. And we saw this, we were talking to people about the, uh, the framework that's emerged during the early days of COVID, uh, at the same time that you know, people were dealing with that risk being imposed on their communities. And so we were talking to people in South Africa who were going out to townships with the advice from the government about how to protect yourself from COVID. And the first line of that advice was saying, wash your hands regularly, which was the number one piece of advice that came out at the time. You know, this was the first thing that it had on a document that was going out in, in communities with no running water and, and, and let alone soap. And so it immediately lost its traction. It immediately didn't seem like it had been written for people who lived in those contexts. And so the people who were involved in that public health campaign said they felt they'd lost the battle uh, of understanding the risk or dealing with the risk before they started. So I think that's an important thing that, you know, it doesn't necessarily tell us that people don't get the numbers or they don't get the seriousness. It sometimes means their context is very different from what we're thinking about. But I think there are some other areas where we have misunderstood just how difficult some things are to grasp. So, for example, the pressure on farmers in in West Africa to make judgments about what crops to sow is huge now because you've got the the eutrophication of the lake, uh, Victoria, big lake, fishing uh, uh, lake and therefore you've got all sorts of problems with the kind of chemical composition of the lake that is affecting uh, fishing and you've also got uh, huge amounts of change in rainfall and some of which is due to climate change a large part of it is due to climate change and some of the effects that they have on their land is due to what's going on in the lake and they're having to make hugely complicated decisions sorts of things that if you look at US farmers, um, you know, would be using a computer program to make. And so I think we also misunder, you know, misunderstand just how much it matters to people to understand what international weather agencies mean by average rainfall. Um, and that there's been a sudden sort of need for, um, for data in those areas where change is being experienced. It sounds like you're talking about empathy and understanding your audience and tailoring a message to your audience, these are very non-statistical, non-quantitative things. Um, how, did, how does that factor in? So the, I think the importance of, of empathy is it leads you to then stop and listen to what it is that people need to know. And I think that one of the things that's come through for us with the framework is that you know, we could have sat down with statisticians and devised a risk know-how framework or risk literacy, as it, some people call it. Um, but what we've ended up with is this sort of syllabus that's come out of real experience. And then we've tested it by involving more and more of people around the world to find out actually, how does this sit with fishing communities? How does this sit with communities of midwives? Um, what kind of experience have they had? And they're the ones that are telling us these are the issues we don't understand. So what we, what we struggle with 
is understanding um, you know, what it means when people say uh, natural frequency, or we don't understand whether when we are looking at something and they're telling us it's average. So here's a good example of you know, people working to improve labor conditions. Um, we don't know what it means when, we, when somebody says average. Does it mean that you know, the average employee, does it mean across other kind of workplaces? Does it mean over time? And so then you look at the providers of the information, the governments and, and, and the agencies that provide that information and think, well, actually they're not providing it in a way that really helps people to understand what they're being told. And so how can we equip both sides of this conversation better? You're listening to Stats and Stories. Our guest today is Sense About Science Director Tracy Brown. You know, in the recent Significance article, you and your co-authors talked about, you know, you've been talking about this empowering people to navigate information and discuss risks in some constructive way. So I'm, I'm now trying to picture a community that has gone from, you know, you know, really wrestling with risk to now a community that has a risk know-how, you know, kind of insight. So, so can you, could you give an example of what that change might look like for the functioning of that community? Well, I think the change is in, in those people who find themselves, what we call um, practitioners, people who end up for one reason or another being in a position of responsibility in their community to talk about risk. Now, sometimes that's because of the nature of the job that they do, or it might be their position in, the, in their community. So, for example, an, a very experienced or head of a union fisherman in the Philippines would be the person who other fishing uh, families look to for advice on how to understand you know, the, the safety uh, benefits of different measures. So we talked, you mentioned LifeFest in the opening of the programme, and we could talk about the debate they're having about LifeFest and sharks. Um, but the you know there there are people who find themselves either because they've got a job like that or just because they were in a place where a community is having a discussion at that time. Um, they find themselves needing to help people in their community, and it's those people that we're looking to empower. So what we want is for them to understand several things. One is you know some key concepts that will help them. The other is what questions to ask about information that they're given so that they can feel savvy and get behind uh, information, ask, ask whether it's really telling them what, what it looks like. I and mean, that's perhaps a very important thing to do when you're looking at media stories. Um, and, then, and then thirdly, to know where to look and to know what they're looking at. So that's, that's what we're looking for, is people feeling able to ask questions. And so to give you an example, I've mentioned the Philippine fishing village. There's a debate about whether or not to wear life vests for Filipino fishermen. And the reason why is because in those particular waters, uh, if you can't swim for shore, then uh, if you're not close enough to the shore to swim it, then you're going to bob around in the water and you're more likely to be eaten by sharks. So in that situation, some people in that community say they'd rather die quickly of drowning um, than wait around to be eaten by um, the local wildlife if you can't swim for sure. And most of those people, you know, grow up swimming very well. So they make a good judgment as to whether they can swim for sure. So that's a that's an interesting debate for that community to have, to try and you know, weigh, weigh up the evidence on both sides in, in a fairly open fashion. Um, but other another example that really struck me is someone we've mentioned in the, the significance piece, Bernard Akebe. So Bernard came to us, uh, Sense About Science, 
with you know contacted us at Sense About Science from from West Africa to say he runs Vernacular Radio, which is like a, a local language radio for for farming communities, and increasingly was getting questions about the impact of climate change and didn't really know how to uh, mediate what he could find internationally into his local setting. So what we're looking to do is to set those people up with a permanent relationship to the data and to the kind of right questions to be intermediaries into their society. Those are fascinating examples. And I'm sitting here thinking about whether knowing more about risk necessarily leads you to the right answer or the right decision when you're talking about the fishermen and the water and the, the sharks. Doesn't that come down to individual choice? Um, so it helps to know the frequency of shark attacks and et cetera. Um, but is there a respect for just individuality of principles or values also in that? I think you know, that's a brilliant question. And this is, I think, a key point of division in, in the initiatives to improve understanding of risk, because some people think that getting the right behaviour shows that how much people understand risk. And others approach it in the way that you've described, which is to say people at the end of the day have their own context of, of priorities to weigh this in. And the approach that we take is along those lines, which is the best thing to hope for, to, to look for, a community that is uh, does have risk know-how, is one that's not surprised by the outcome. So if you choose to do something that you think is a personal choice, don't be surprised if the thing that we've warned, you know, shouldn't be surprised if the thing that's been warned of happens to you. And I think that's our first kind of goal, isn't it? We all want to be in a position where we have access to that information about what is likely to happen if we pursue different paths. The debate comes when we have to debate these things as a community, like what's in the interest of the community versus the individual, and those are age-old debates that aren't just limited to risk. Uh, but I think that if we're all approaching things at least with the ability to get a clear look at the numbers, then that's, that's a real win. I should add that the reason why we really came at this was we, we started doing some work with the Lloyds uh, Register Foundation, which is uh, supports a sort of 10-year look around the world with Gallup, looking at the way that different communities perceive risk. So there's data that's uh, gathered every two years and published every two years. So we were working with them on the 2020 poll, and we noticed that there was an absence of that kind of thinking. Um, thinking about how this really worked for people in a more in a practice position rather than just sort of the World Bank and international agencies. And so it was because we were thinking about, you know, you know what happens when you become risk literate and, uh, and seeing such huge difference in different societies as for, you know, difference amongst people about uh, the kind of control they have over the risks or the risks that they face in the context of other risks. And so, you know, the other thing, of course, with the Filipino fishermen is that their, their risk to their livelihood is far greater um, than it would be if you're talking about, you know, the, the cod fishing trawlers going out, you know, in, in Canada, for example. Um, the, the risk to livelihood is, is much more immediate uh, in terms of making those decisions about exposure. 
You know, I, I really like the aspect of this that, that has this systems thinking approach that, that you're really taking. A lot of times when, when discussions of risk are made, it's, it seems like it's often kind of extracting this as a, a separate risk without thinking about the replacement that you might have for something that might, that's perhaps hazardous. But, but you're looking at the, the, whole, the whole package together. I'm, I'm curious what, what kind of reaction you've had from journalists or uh, politicians or policymakers as, as you've, you've talked more about this, this uh, risk know-how framework. Well, there's a lot of interest from policymakers um, in this because the, you know, the, the need to make trade-offs is one that they not only are they dealing with a population that has to make risk trade-offs, but they themselves are making those trade-offs and then trying to explain them all the time. And so COVID has been a really, the COVID-19 experience has been a really clear experience of, of how do politicians talk about risk trade-offs and how does the public understand those. Um, I think that's the crucial uh, conversation that has to happen so often around policies and so often it's difficult. I mean, a good example is when you get new technologies introduced and people often don't put them in the context of the risks that, uh, that were faced with old technologies. So uh, we've seen it with the discussion about um, GMOs and whatever you think of, of GMOs, you also have to have a discussion about the risk of chemical applications and constantly polluting waterways with chemical applications to crops. Um, because otherwise you have a discussion about the risk of GMOs, which there obviously will be some risk profile of GMOs. And you have that in a vacuum and people are looking at that and of course will say, no, thank you. But if you have to say, well, these are the risks that we're facing at the moment, and these are the risks that are brought with the new technology, and these are the unknowns, uh, then people can have a much more nuanced, rounded conversation. And I think politicians are really attracted to that idea. They do then find it quite difficult to do in practice, and they're nervous about, about having that conversation with the public. We'd love to see a much more confident conversation um, about how those trade-offs are made. And I mean, you, you know, in the States, there's been a lot of discussion about um, transport. And so, you know, there was after 9-11, there was a huge exodus from from using plane travel. But there was a huge increase in the years that followed in, in road deaths. And again, you know, at a policy level, that was something that had to be looked at. As individual level, I don't think people weighed it in quite the same way as politicians, but but I think that that's why politicians are very drawn to imagining, you know, there's something that does need to be sponsored and encouraged in the risk know-how domain. Um, we would like to take it one step further and say, you know, really, in the modern age, you know, all governments should be thinking about what they do to support this and whether that's, you know, through not just school programmes, but just in general, in the way that they also communicate their own statistics about risk. Are they thinking about increasing the risk know-how in their society? So that's that's the very positive thing on, on governments. Media, I think, are a, a more fickle beast um, in terms of the news story around risk. But, um, but we have had a lot of interest in, in ways of um, understanding data, um, particularly around areas like climate and other big policy-making areas. So we've had a lot of interest in that and we've We've been really excited also to have some really under-resourced media outlets from around the world look for more help, something we hope we can broker a bit more, look for more help in understanding international data about risks. What place does humility 
have in all of this as us as risk communicators because science changes and it's very difficult for, I think, people to communicate some sort of risk or advise some sort of action. And then when things change a year from now or three months from now during a pandemic, people hold on to what they said before. So how can we have that sort of humility? Well, I think humility is the start and the end of this. I mean, for, for a number of reasons. I do think there's the research community perhaps needs to have a conversation with itself about that, Regina, because, you know, very easily slides from the statement of how things are to the statement of what I think people should do. And of course, the media encourages it. So, you know, you have scientists going on daytime TV all day long uh, because there's a real hunger around an issue, as of course happened with the pandemic. Um, And they're constantly asked, what should people do? And of course, in the area of public health, you have a lot of crossover between that statement of how things are and the statement of what people should do. And that has been quite dominant um, in the way that science communications happened and risk communications happened um, over the last couple of years. And I think we need a bit of point of reflection there that you did see people from the research community overstepping. You know, that they might be advising what you should do in terms of staying at home, but not from the perspective of being, um, you know, a single mother with four children of all different ages around the kitchen table trying to, you know, follow lessons on Zoom uh, with one set of headphones. I mean, they were not doing it from that perspective. They didn't understand the context in which the the risk of going outside or going to school was being uh, played out in different households and didn't show much sensitivity sometimes. Uh, to those issues and so and that's everywhere I mean as it comes through and I think this, the examples that we've mentioned in the significance piece uh, comes through in you know sometimes uh, big wealthy countries not really understanding uh, the limits in poorer countries of their ability to defend themselves against certain risks or you know to uh, put in place uh, measures to, to protect themselves. Well, that's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. Tracy, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media Journalism and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter, Apple Podcasts, or other places where you can find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.